0: It's Friday, 6th of January, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and coming up, we have the latest from our China team about what the government's retreat there from zero COVID means for the country's economic outlook. But first, I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Morning, David, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You made the point late last year about how. Outfits like ours devote some of their December to explaining what they think is gonna happen in the coming year, and we're no different. We've got a world in 2023 page. I'll link to that on the on the podcast page. That outlines what we think is going to be the key things to watch for in the next 12 months. And it also includes your podcast with John Higgins, our chief markets economist, all about the twenty three macro market outlook. But for this, I thought we could take that discussion forward a bit, talk a bit about some of the known unknowns in the coming year, the risks on the downside, but also the upside that we think clients should be keeping an eye on. And I thought we'd start with inflation because that's got to be the biggest question in 23 as, as markets get underway. Our Global Inflation Watch was out on Tuesday. And I think one of its key messages was that the worst is past for global price pressures. At the same time, we've got this chart on our World in 2023 page, which lists all of the upside and downside risks of the global outlook this year. And inflation appears on that as something that could go right, but also wrong for the global economy. So I was wondering if you could start by talking a bit about those upside and downside risks around inflation, but also perhaps
1: talk about which looks
0: more likely. From the, from the view of the economist team.
1: Yes, I mean, on the face of it, it sounds a bit like a classic economist response to everything, doesn't it? On the one hand, inflation could be stickier. On the other hand, it could fall faster. But I think this gets to the nub of an issue that we've discussed previously on podcasts, which is that our old frameworks for thinking about inflation have failed us, really, over the past year or so. And central banks are increasingly cognizant of this, and we've started to see this reflected in some central bank communications too. So I think we need to recognise that there. although we have a view that inflation will fall pretty swiftly over the course of this year, certainly in the US, it could fall even faster than we expect, but also there could be some stickier elements as well that central banks will focus on. Now, to walk you through that, why might inflation fall even faster than we anticipate? I think the main reason for thinking that that could happen is what's happening in global energy markets. Particularly in Europe, we've seen over the past couple of weeks a collapse in European natural gas prices. They've almost halved over the past two or three weeks and now back to their pre-war levels before Russia invaded Ukraine, which is remarkable, really. Now, our commodities team have made the point that this has been driven principally by mild weather in Europe, so we're kind of one cold snap away from prices rebounding. But if these levels are sustained, then that would knock about 0.5 0.5 percentage points off of average inflation in the UK and the eurozone in 2023 and 2024. So pretty, yeah, pretty substantial in the in the scheme of things. So that's a reason to think inflation could fall faster. Why might it prove stickier? Well, I think the the issue here is really what's happening in labour markets. Now, in the US in particular, there had been some pretty hopeful signs that labour market conditions were starting to loosen. But then in the past week, we've had evidence from the JOLTS data that Job openings have been a bit stronger than expected. The quit rates, which had been falling, picked up a little. So there are some signs that maybe that that loosening in labor market conditions in the US has stalled. And this is gonna be the key. The Fed is now focused on core service inflation excluding housing. And that's really kind of linked to the tightness of the labor market. The, the, the labor market is what's driving that, that inflation rate. So if we're wrong on inflation and it's, it's stickier, it's because Labor market dynamics are extremely difficult to to read in a post-COVID world, and um, wage pressures and, and labor market pressures prove a bit more substantive and sticky than, than we had thought.
0: And Can we turn to China, because that's the other big story of the moment. It does tie in with, with- some of what you're saying about inflation risk. As I said, our China team's going to be on in a bit. They'll be talking about the extent of the current wave and its economic implications. But what's clear is Beijing has retreated from zero COVID restrictions, pretty sharpish. And these have been a giant constraint on the Chinese economy for nearly three years now. So what does this retreat mean for, for the global economy? Is it going to be a big positive risk in 23? Or is this such a public health disaster that actually... It's going to pose a challenge for the global economy because of, of China's, you know, many interdependencies.
1: Yeah, well, I think the best way to think about it is that there's two stages to China's reopening. There's the initial stage that we're going through at the moment, where restrictions are being dismantled. And then we are seeing a, a new wave of infections. We're seeing a huge hit both on the demand side and the supply side of China's economy. And then when you get through that phase, you're into a second phase where you're living with covid effectively and the question there is what spillovers will that weakness in china have on the rest of the world and it really depends on the extent to which it affects the demand side versus the supply side and how that balance shakes out now we've seen some signs that manufacturers in china are starting to struggle with worker absences now that could spill over into into global supply chains but i think it's worth stressing that the global economy is in a very different place now than was the case in 2021 and the start of 2022 when the supply shortages on the goods side were at their most acute demand is weaker in the global economy generally we've seen a pivot in consumption patterns away from goods and back to services within advanced economies so on the demand side the picture is different in in advanced economies and in the rest of the world and perhaps there's a bit more slack in china's economy too. Um, yes, there'll be some supply disruptions, but there's perhaps a bit more slack on the manufacturing side too. So my sense is that a lot of the fears that China's reopening will pose a big inflationary threat to the rest of the world are probably a bit overdone, but there, there, there are clearly ways that that could be proved wrong, particularly if there's a much bigger hit to, the, to supply in China over the, the coming months. And
0: another aspect of China's reopening that we've been looking at, is probably worth mentioning, is this, this idea that, that outbound tourism will eventually return this year. Quite dramatically but the conclusion from our economist team seems to be it won't have that much of a, a positive impact on on economies e- excluding the hot destinations like hong kong and thailand the team shows how actually the contribution as a percent of gdp is pretty low in the single digits and that's something we'll be watching closely obviously and i will be linking to to some of that research on on the podcast page as well so watch out for that neil can we also turn to Geopolitics. I mean, that was last year's big economic catalyst. We talked in December about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine turned an inflation problem into a crisis, prompted central bankers to find their inner Volcker, and our Spotlight project, which is our big annual research Project last October when it came out, it made the point about how geopolitics is back as a driver of economic and market outcomes in the
1: global economy. On that
0: front, how should clients be thinking about geopolitical risk in 2023?
1: Well, clearly, when we talk about geopolitics and for that matter, domestic politics, there are lots of risks and there are lots of ways in which the current status quo could be upset. But I still think that the fracturing framework is a useful way of of approaching geopolitical risk in particular what's happening as we laid out in that spotlight report is that the world is essentially splitting into two blocks, one that's aligned with the US and one that's aligned with China. And several nations will try to to, to bridge that gap and bridge the bit between the blocks. But for the most part, Europe will coalesce around the US aligned block and countries like Russia will align with China and that will shape economic policy choices increasingly and, and economic and market outcomes. So I think it still makes sense as a lens to think about geopolitical risk. Clearly that there's echoes of that in, in what's happened in Ukraine this year. Now, one of the ways that fracturing has started to manifest itself in markets narratives is the idea that an alliance between uh, China Russia and some of the Gulf states will lead to the emergence of a petro one over the coming year or so, in which essentially trade in energy between China and the Gulf states and Russia will be increasingly denominated in renminbi. This will lead to the the internationalization of the renminbi in a way that will challenge the dollar status as the global reserve currency and the US's status as providing essentially the plumbing for the global economy. Now, our take is that fracturing is very real. It will continue to have. Um, a huge bearing on economic and market outcomes over the next decade or so. But I don't believe that it's going to lead to the the, the demise of the dollar on a global scale. I'd be very surprised if in 10 years' time we're, we're in a position where the, the the dollar has been substantially challenged by the renminbi. And we, we have for the reasons we laid out in the Spotlight Report.
0: Yeah, so it does seem to be a Sort of a new strand of this long-running theme in markets about the looming fall of of dollar supremacy and and, and the rise of the renminbi, the yuan, as as a challenger to that. And I'm going to link to your note on financial flows and global economic fracturing on the podcast page, because I think just by mapping the scale of what we mean when we talk about dollar dominance in the global economy, it does a really good job of showing the extent of, of the challenge faced by the boosters of, of the renminbi or, or even the euro. They run up, it seems, against these network effects that you describe in, in the paper. But there's other reasons why people would rather hold
1: dollars than, than renminbi. I was wondering if you could go into some of those. Well, I think that's specifically the point between China, Russia, and the Middle East, and whether the trade between those nations will grow to an extent that it starts to the the the, the increase in denomination of that trade, and maybe will start to threaten the dollar's position. First of all, there's a point of scale here. Bilateral trade between China and Russia in the Middle East accounts for about two percent of total global trade right now. So, it remains the case that trade between the U.S. and the rest of the world, and within the U.S. bloc, is by far the dominant feature of of global trade at the moment. So I think there's a scale problem to start off with. If the, the proximate cause of the dollar's decline is the emergence of this petro one, because there's simply not enough trade between these countries to threaten the dollar's position. But as you say, there's there are other factors that work in the dollar's favor too, over and above this. For a currency really to be used as an international medium of exchange and a reserve currency, it's gotta be readily and cheaply available around the world. And that in turn means that foreigners must be willing to hold it. It's got to act as a, as a store of value. Now, clearly, the dollar performs this role. Other currencies could perform that role too. But any credible alternative would need to share the same attributes as the dollar. It would need to be backed by strong and stable institutions. It needs to be issued by a central bank that operates an, op- an open capital account. Um, and clearly, those are big hurdles that work against the renminbi at the moment, and for that matter, the the ruble too. So I think you put all of that together and you have this sense that there there are still a lot of things working in the dollar's favour. There's the network effects that you talk about that you'd have to overcome to supplant the dollar. Anything that did supplant the dollar would have to pretty much have the same attributes as the dollar anyway. And and at the moment, that's certainly not the renminbi.
0: That was Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing on the downside and upside risks that are on our radar screens for 2023 now, as mentioned, China has been much in focus in recent weeks after what looks like a very abrupt decision from the top leadership to go from zero Covid to zero zero Covid. Most restrictions to fight the pandemic have basically been scrapped and by some accounts most of the population in China's big cities have already been infected. Anecdotal evidence suggests this policy U-turn has entailed a terrible human cost. But despite the absence of hard data, our China team now thinks the peak of this current wave of infections has passed. Mark Williams, our chief Asia economist, spoke to senior China economist Julian Evans Pritchard about what's happening on the ground in China. Mark starts by asking Julian what evidence we have to conclude that the worst may be behind for China.
2: So that's based on a few different indicators. One thing that we look look at is uh, online uh, search trends. So searches for things like fever, which soared initially following the, the the reopening in December. That surge in in searches for fever has basically almost fully reversed. You know, perhaps a sign that the the reopening wave has largely run its course, at least at the national level. And the the other indicator is just mobility, with you know. The, the outbreak uh, easing, people seem to be a bit more comfortable returning to the streets. And we're seeing that in the mobility data. So subway traffic across the 23 cities for which we have data. A few weeks ago, it was just a third of normal levels. Now it's back to two thirds of normal levels. So a clear sign there that things are getting better again. It is pretty remarkable. Um, I mean, it's only right at the beginning of December that, that, that all of the restrictions were
3: relaxed and uh, and yet we're saying that the the way we speak but that does seem to be consistent with the anecdotal reports and suggestions that you're know, think in some of the big cities 70 percent of people some of these surveys are suggesting have have already had covid and i guess if you've had covid then you've got no reason to stay at home anymore you may as well go out and go uh, out and go out and shop what about the the new year migration people are heading back for new year's day which is what the 22nd of of January. Do you think that's going to lead to a second wave or how does that play into things?
2: I think that's certainly a risk. For now, the outbreaks have been concentrated, it seems, in the large cities. But obviously, as migrant workers return to, to their hometowns for the holiday, they're likely to uh, bring the virus with them to sort of more remote parts of the country that maybe haven't experienced as large of a wave yet. So, you know, that could, I think, uh, result in a sort of second wave. However, I I think that's less of a concern for a few reasons. One is simply that uh, the bulk of economic activity in China is concentrated in the in the larger urban areas, and and in those areas the the reopening wave has seemed to already seems to have peaked. So even if we do get a second wave in in smaller towns, rural areas it's unlikely to have as large of an economic impact as, as the reopening wave in larger cities that, that's already happened. Presumably though I mean the healthcare impact is
3: presumably worse. I mean we've seen in Beijing the photos of, of ambulances queuing outside hospitals, which is partly because that's where a lot of the reporters are, are based. And there aren't as many foreigners in China as they used to be, but they tend to be in the big cities obviously. We have a much less good view of what's going on in the smaller cities and, and the towns, but we do know that their healthcare systems are a lot less well resourced than the, the big cities. So I guess it's a lot of this is happening out of sight, but the healthcare impact of it is, is presumably terrible at the moment.
2: Yeah, I think so. And obviously it's very, very sad what's what's happening, but there aren't really any signs that they're likely to reverse course in in response to those healthcare strains. So even if we do see a large number of deaths in the countryside over, over Chinese New Year, it seems that, that you know, They've made a sort of permanent transition to living with the virus, and one that they're not going to go back on, even amid those healthcare strains. Yeah, I mean, looking back to what we were writing I mean, only sort of six weeks ago,
3: I guess that is the big surprise: is that is that the leadership have gone from this hardline policy, which was effective in terms of keeping infections down and keeping deaths down, until it until it wasn't, to to, to one in which they really don't seem to be taking any care about preventing people getting ill. Which is probably kind of the worst possible way of doing it, way of opening up from a healthcare perspective, but perversely from a kind of economic perspective, it's probably one of the better ways of, of doing it because we're getting through this way very quickly. And of course it's happening at a time. I noticed in the PMI reports that a number of respondents, to the manufacturing PMI said that workers being ill had held back output people weren't coming into to work but obviously this is happening at a time of year when a lot of firms are kind of winding down anyway for the lunar new year holiday so if you were to pick a time when you can have worker absences because of illness then sort of late december january would would, would be the time you do it so it's, i think there's a there's a kind of awful relationship there that it's the worst possible way to open it from a healthcare perspective but actually the economic impact is probably minimized. I know you've been doing some thinking about inflation and and how this all plays out. We've certainly had some interest in this from clients. What is the situation do you think? And Are there any signs of of major sort of supply chain disruptions from this? I mentioned worker illnesses, keeping people away from factories. Any signs of that in the in the inflation data
2: well we don't have much inflation data to go on so far the the data that we have so far doesn't point to much of an impact, but it could be missing you know just not capturing some of the areas where we are seeing problems but in in terms of the Disruption to outputs, you know, there there have been some clear signs there. So the PMI is particularly weak at the moment. A lot of respondents to the PMI is complaining about, as you say, workers being sick, and and in some cases, so many workers are being sick at the same time that they've had to temporarily halt uh, production. So there there has been some supply side shock. The question is whether that's significant enough to really cause problems for goods supply, good shortages in China and elsewhere. And I suspect that the impact will be fairly limited, partly because there's a lot more slack in supply chains now, given that demand is relatively weak, both domestically and overseas, than that than there was in the past when when export demand was was extremely strong. And if you look at the data on inventories of finished goods in China, for example, they're they're very elevated at the moment relative to to sales. So as long as the logistics networks are still functioning adequately enough to move those goods to to the customers, which for the most part, seems to be the case, then I think the impact on, on near-term inflation is probably quite small.
3: And if there, it already looks like infections in large parts of the country are, are dropping back, how far are we then from something like a return to normality? I mean, at this time of year, everyone's always thinking about the uh, Lunar New Year holiday. When people get back from that, is is that it? Do you think that's then all over and China is kind of post-COVID at that point?
2: Well, I mean, as we've seen in in other countries, it's not sort of one and done with the reopening wave. You're going to get subsequent waves of infection. So I wouldn't say the pandemic is over. That said, you know, we've already seen most virus controls dismantled. And once the bulk of the population have, have already had COVID, they're less likely to be afraid of catching it again. So we're less likely to see sort of behavioural change in in subsequent waves. And also, it seems unlikely that the government would reimpose restrictions in in future waves. So even if we do get repeated COVID waves going forward, um, the economic impact of those waves is likely to be pretty small compared to, to, to what we've seen during the past few years. In terms of how long it takes us to reach that, that stage, I'd say it looks like it's going to happen pretty fast, certainly faster than, than I think we and many had expected a couple of months ago. It now seems like you know probably by the end of this quarter, uh, things will be largely back to normal in terms of the, the impact that the pandemic's having on the economy. I look forward to it. We can get back to writing about the
3: uh, the property crisis and, and uh, the, the usual things. What's your current thinking on, on what was behind the shift in, in, in policy. There's been some interesting things written in the Washington Journal, for example, recently about you know, why Xi Jinping changed course. What what's your your thinking? Was it a was it a plan
2: or was it forced upon them or what? Or... Well, I think the evidence suggests that it wasn't planned at least certainly not in the immediate aftermath of the of the party congress there was a lot of speculation at the time that there would be a shift in in the zero in COVID policy and the authorities came out with a pretty clear message in the state media that that, that was not what they were planning and that they were going to save the course with with the zero COVID policy um it was only a month or so later uh that there was this shift and, and that shift coincided with a growing number of outbreaks across the country and a growing cost from from those outbreaks with a, with a huge number of people in, in quarantine, the highest number of people ever at any point during the pandemic. This was imposing large fiscal costs on local governments, sustaining the zero COVID policy. And I think it because of those outbreaks, it seemed increasingly uh, untenable, at least in its current form. And that's when they tried to Moved to a sort of lighter touch approach to zero COVID with with the twenty measures. At the time, they were still saying that this was not, you know, a move away from zero COVID completely. They were not lying flat and letting the virus just spread through the 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 country. And I think the trouble is that, uh, and, and we made this point ahead of that shift, is you can't really stake some stake the middle ground when it comes to virus control. You either have to take it very very seriously, keep cases close to zero, or learn to live with the virus. And I think. Trying to take an in-between road didn't really work out very well uh, for them, and I think as a result they just decided to abandon the, the, the zero COVID policy completely at that time. And I think there was a broader backdrop here of growing concerns among the leadership of, uh, uh, surrounding the economy. I mean, we've seen not just in COVID policy, but on lots of different areas, there's been a clear shift in recent months towards a stance that is more supportive to the economy. So, for example, in foreign relations as well, trying to strike a more conciliatory tone with with the US and others, and also on the property sector as well, where they've rolled out more support measures recently and and seem to be uh, stepping back from the, the free red lines policy. So all of these things happening together at the same time, to me, suggest that there was a wider decision to focus on on the economy and, and getting the economy back on, on track yes but as you said going
3: easier on on COVID turned out not to be a, a sustainable path i've just pulled up the piece that you wrote all the way back in the 11th of november what's that about seven weeks ago lighter touch version of zero COVID is a gamble you titled that piece it feels like an era ago
0: That's it for this episode. You'll find the work referenced here on the podcast page of our website, capitaleconomics.com. Don't forget to subscribe via Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week with more on central banks versus inflation, China's COVID struggles, and much, much more. But for now, goodbye.